You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is the first episode of our fall 2020 season. I'm your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? Pretty decent. Uh, Where are you at? Last time we recorded, I think you were still in Woodstock. I am no longer in Woodstock now. Victoria and I live in Sandy Springs, Georgia, which is right there on the perimeter of Atlanta. Very, very cool. Uh, Also with us is Nathan Gilmore, uh, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? I am still here. I'm teaching all my classes online this semester, so I'm actually recording from Statham, Georgia. Ah, excellent. I am, uh, HBU is doing an in-class online hybrid. I see something like 25% of my role uh, in class and all the rest of them are um, watching uh, the recording of the class. Does it rotate, David, or is it the same 25 people every, or 25% every time? About half of the role is attending in class and they rotate. The other half has opted to take it 100% remote. And the way we're doing... The way that we're doing it this semester is that the students can opt for hybrid attendance, which is in-class one day, remote the other day, or 100% remote. And they can make that call week by week, depending on what their needs are. That is very sensible. Yeah. Is it hard for you to not be able to spray them with the water gun that you're known for carrying in class, David? No, no. I haven't had to do any of that. (laughs) Uh, in, in fact, um, classroom classroom management has been um, a breeze because no one can hide behind anyone. No one can sit close enough to anyone to whisper or exchange, you know, meaningful glances. Even really, um, on the other hand, uh, I kind of have to watch their eyes carefully to tell whether or not my jokes are landing. Well, as Aretha Franklin said, "Who's zooming who?" Right. Yeah, well, I'm not Zooming anybody this fall, thank God. Well, before we turn to our topic today, what's happening on the network? Goodness. Um, City of Man just had two episodes on the two two major parties' conventions. I I listened to the Democratic one. I haven't listened to the uh to the republican one yet and coil for those episodes is joined by nick rodriguez from the prophetic politics podcast i think they have a pretty good rapport i you know i don't know if i missed the episode but they made the announcement but ed ed has uh decided to to step back from that show so coil is it kind of has a a rotating 
group of people he brings in. Uh, yeah, most of them from the D.C. area, as far as I can discern. Yeah, from when he was in graduate school and met people. But Nick uh, Rodriguez, I thought, was a very, very good co-host for Coil. He kind of understands Coil's thing and can roll with it. Right, right. We've also got a new uh, Christian feminist podcast that will be live by the time listeners hear this on Harriet Tubman. Uh, also, uh, the Christian Humanist Profiles e- episode on symbol and existence will be coming soon. Michael, is that one of your interviews? It is, yeah. It's the new Walker Percy book. It's it's a book he wrote before he wrote any of his novels. And um, some very hardworking editors uh, have put it out. And I talked to three of four, three of, four of them. And uh, I, I think... The book, if you're a Walker Percy fan, is going to be essential because what I said in that interview, and I, I stand by it, is the, the kind of various threads of his philosophy come together in that book. And, and so I understood his novels better after reading that book. So if you're, if you're a Percy fan, especially a Percy fan who, like me, has had trouble sometimes with what he's doing, um, you definitely need to read Symbol in Existence or at the very least listen to that episode. Very good. We've also got a sectarian review episode. Uh, Danny's talking with the author of the recent article, Drinking Alone, uh, which is about pursuing an academic career in the middle of the Rust Belt and finding it difficult to connect with the locals. Boy, is that uh, a Danny can't Anderson think why Danny... <laughs> No punchline needed. Uh, and also from uh, the Anderson corner of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, I want to recommend that our listeners tune in to the episodes of Restoration. Uh, This is our new Creation Care podcast. Uh, It it started dropping episodes kind of in the middle of COVID mania, so it's been a little bit overshadowed, unfortunately. Uh, But it's quite good. Kim Anderson interviews a range of uh, academics, ministers, uh, activists on uh, creation care. And the most recent one is with, a, I believe, a Nazarene pastor from Oklahoma, uh, who undertook an, a, an experiment in uh, reducing, you know, the, sort of the personal environmental footprint. So it's a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, Before They Were Live is delayed a week, so it didn't come out last week as you're listening to this, but it will be out hopefully two days from now. We I looked up last Saturday, which is when we normally record it, and I thought, oh, we never scheduled Before They Were Live. So eventually we'll be talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Also, if you'll allow me a little bit of non-network self-promotion, I did an interview on the show Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee, which is a really great podcast that a couple of former colleagues of mine at Crown do. Um, And they had me on to talk about the future of higher ed, which, you know, the the irony is not lost on me. I'm no longer in higher ed, and yet here I am bloviating about it. So if you're interested in hearing me bloviate, I had a lot of fun doing that interview, and I listened back to it this morning, and I don't think I came off too uh, ridiculous. Professors in Rooms <laughs> Getting Coffee is the name of that show. Cool. Yeah, you're not in cars. That's right. And, you know, yeah. we recorded at night, so we weren't, in fact, getting coffee. I think I was drinking whiskey, uh, <laughs> which, which might make the interview more exciting. I don't know. Yeah, could be, could be. Well, as you can see, dear listeners, a lot is going on, and a lot more will be going on. Uh, those are just, those are just the sorts of things that are going to be available to you uh, when this episode drops. Uh, but we have 
More in the pipeline. Much, 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 much more. Well, today, turning to our topic, this was uh, to be recorded last week so that it would have been released uh, released today, while we were uh, the day that we are recording, in fact. Um, looking back at the previous, uh, back to the previous uh, Sunday. But on this particular, uh, but because we delayed a week, you know, you're going to have to look back two weeks. We are looking at a sermon uh, by the Venerable Bede, which was uh, composed to be preached on the, uh, the observance of uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. So we're, we've got two different layers here. We've got the John the Baptist layer, and we've also got the Venerable Bede layer, because he's, he's the one who's preaching to us. So before, uh, before we turn to the sermon, Nathan, who is this Bede fellow, and why might we venerate him, at least in some sense? Bede was a monk uh, born in the 7th century and lived into the 8th century. Uh, he was one of the great intellectuals of England, certainly of that period, and really of all Europe of that period, uh, kind of before the, uh, the court of Charlemagne, you know, uh, systematized learning to a great extent. I mean, the educational system was largely centered upon uh, monasteries, and so... Uh, Bede, uh, his most famous work is the Ecclesial, Ecclesiastical History of the English People, uh, which really is, you know, again, one of the first, uh, I guess, uh, book length, if you will, uh, histories of England. So really quite important for, you know, reconstructing uh, those early decades and early centuries. Uh, he's the only Englishman in Dante's Paradiso. I read one time. I've never... Uh, that's not what I'm paying attention to when I reread Dante, but I believe it. Uh, and, uh, what's interesting is that, uh, I, reading around, you know, trying to figure out why he is the venerable bead instead of, uh, you know, some other adjective or saint bead, uh, the legend that I ran across is that when they were carving his, uh, epitaph, uh, an angel appeared and said, right venerable, right venerable. David, uh, you probably know this legend better than I do, or if I just, you know, uh, was drinking whiskey while rec recording a podcast and had that vision myself. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> David, you you, uh, you spend more time with Bede than I do by far, so what else do our listeners need to know? Yeah, Venerable is on his tombstone. Um, it is also uh, one of the... Oh gosh, levels of recognition within the Roman Catholic Church on the route to canonization as a saint, um, and sometimes uh, that title is taken as a as 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 an acknowledgement that oh well, Bede hasn't made it there yet. In fact, he in fact he has he is reckoned um, among the saints. He has a feast day, and in fact uh, is uh, a doctor of the church. So um, the venerable doesn't mean doesn't mean necessarily that. It probably rises from the fact that he was such an influential teacher and educator. You, you mentioned Nathan, uh, Charlemagne's um, establishment of kind of a, a formal, more formal educational system. 
uh, one of the masterminds of Charlemagne's reform was the English monk um, Alcuin, who was a student of Bede. So the part of the stature, um, uh, I, I would imagine, part of the stature of Bede in uh, Western Europe, medieval Western Europe, comes from his status as uh, a, a teacher of teachers, if you will. Uh, he is prolific. Um, he, he wrote sermons, he wrote histories, uh, he wrote a, live, uh, a Life of St. Cuthbert, which is rather nice. Uh, he also wrote a poetic version, which is lost. Um, he wrote books on the nature of time. He wrote books that made uh, a book on the nature of things, which is mostly about meteorological phenomena and stuff like that. Um, he wrote he wrote about just about everything. <laughs> so uh, I, I think he has this this reputation coming into the Middle Ages that's comparable to someone like Isidore of Seville, um, uh, with his big book of etymologies as one of those kind of late classical, early medieval scholars who seems to have said something about everything. Back when a person could still do that. Yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's the patron of uh, English writers and historians. And then some other stuff. But I, I would say that's his, his major patronage, which is not us. We write in English, but not uh, we don't. We're not English, right? He also, though, um, he's also the source of some of the best known uh, stories from that period. His his history, uh, so things like Cadman's Hymn, um, the first recorded uh, poem uh, in English with a named author, um, beats the source of that. So. Um, I, Which I, means I he like, named your third child. Is that right? Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, indirectly. At least David. Can, can I assume that when you finally join the true one Catholic Apostolic Church, uh, Saint Bede will be your patron, your confirmation saint? <laughs> um, I kind of already reckon him, sort of officially un as uh, as unofficially that as one possibly can while still being a Baptist. Um, but, uh, Bede is, I, yeah, Bede is just enormously important to me. And I, I'm very, very happy to be looking at this text today. Though, of course, we've observed this before. The irony is that on the episode that we pick the topic, we do the least talking. <laughs> so, ah, well. Uh, I, I will enjoy having made y'all talk about Bede. But we're also talking about John the Baptist. Uh, the sermon's occasion is the beheading of John the Baptist. And that might strike someone as gruesome for a church holy day. Also, That person has never paid much attention <laughs> to the church holy days, I suppose. Well, that's fair. Um, and... I'll, I'll let you unpack that. But also Bede says at the beginning of this sermon that they are celebrating John the Baptist's birthday. But he already has one of those on the liturgical calendar. What is going on here, Michael? 
It's actually his birthday that is the weird thing on the liturgical calendar because saints' days, if if they know the date the saint died, that's the day um, that they get their their saints' day. So it's it's not unusual at all that we would be celebrating the day John the Baptist died. The idea is that's your heavenly birthday is the term Bede uses there in the first sentence of this homily. So it's the day that you uh, you you ascend to your true home as opposed to being born into this veil of tears. As far as I know, only three people in the church calendar have their actual, like, physical birthday celebrated. One is, of course, Jesus. The other two are John the Baptist and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in the Roman church, at least, um, that's because those two are are considered to have been born without sin. Mary, of course, uh, Catholics believe... Uh, was you know underwent the the uh, immaculate conception and thus was never never had sin. John the Baptist, uh, this was new to me, but apparently uh, we Catholics believe that John the Baptist was cleansed of sin while still in the womb. Thus, it's it's legitimate for us to celebrate their birthdays along with Christ's birthday. But yeah, the the beheading is would would, would be what you would expect us. Uh, to celebrate and and John the Baptist's beheading is fairly mild compared to some of the martyrs. Um, in in the church that we, we we celebrate. So if if you saw the title uh, of this episode, dear listener, or uh, heard the sermon on on the feast of the beheading of John the Baptist, and we're like, uh, get more cheerful holidays. We'll. What could I, be more <laughs> cheerful than John the Baptist going to heaven? I mean, that that's the idea, is that you're supposed to celebrate them, them being, them ascending to this, this perfected place as opposed to um, living here. And, and I, I mean, it is true that the, the mode of his ascent uh, was not what you would hope, but it, the, you're not celebrating his death, you're celebrating his new life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if you come into this with a, uh, a sort of squeamish, um, think of the children idea about this content, um, a big part of what Bede is doing here is telling us how to feel about this moment in the text in ways that might be different from, um, our early 21st century ideas. So Bede starts his sermon by explaining why it's so important that he's going to be focusing mainly on the wicked oppressors in this story. And that's an interesting feature of this sermon, I think. So, Nathan, what is Bede's purpose for meditating on Herod, especially? And how is he using both sacred and secular Jewish histories to do that? So there are a few different uses of Herod that that I spotted here. Uh, one of them is a sort of an a fortiori, a fortiori argument. Uh, you know, even Herod uh, grants the possibility of rising from the dead because uh, when he hears that there's someone traveling around preaching the kingdom of heaven and he's already had John the Baptist beheaded, he says, it must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. So therefore, you know, even the... Uh, the reprobate uh, can believe in the resurrection, so you know so much more so should the faithful do so. But he does distinguish and says that uh, even though he thinks that this is possible, uh, that he does not you know come to anything resembling a a saving faith as a result. Um, 
he also uses Herod as a sort of moral teaching. Uh, he notes that, you know, Herod's eventual murder of John the Baptist uh, stems from an earlier sin of lust. So there's this theme that, uh, you know, our listeners might recognize from the, the opening chapters of the Epistle of James, uh, that the lesser sins end up begetting greater sins. So his lust uh, begets a rash oath. His rash oath begets uh, murder. And, you know, that's that's kind of a biggie. A uh, couple points, David, that I, I just want to uh, appreciate here because I, I enjoyed having a look at this. One of them is that uh, he does bring in details that are not from the canonical Gospels but are from Flavius Josephus, and they are largely brought in as context to explain why it is that John the Baptist objects to the marriage of Herod and Herodias in the first place. The Gospels of, of Mark and Matthew are a little bit short on detail in that respect, and Luke too, sorry, shouldn't leave out Luke. Uh, but uh, Josephus, you know, explains that Herodias uh, had a previous husband, but in good Roman style, uh, she was unceremoniously divorced from the less influential husband and remarried to Herod in a matter in a manner, pardon me, uh, that that reminded me of uh, of Augustus's Caesar Octavia. Uh, she had, as I remember, at least one upgrade marriage, so to speak. Uh, although you know, in retrospect, it seems like that was just an occasion uh, to make Mark Antony an adulterer as well as everything else. Uh, the other thing that I appreciate here is that uh, before he launches into this explanation of you know the marriage of Herod and Herodias. Uh, he says, and I and I don't have it in Latin here. I'm going from the English translation that we're using. Uh, but perhaps someone is asking who Herod was, and who his brother, and who Herodias. So it's one of those nice moments where you know, uh, uh, as he is you know writing this homily, presumably uh, to be read out in parishes, uh, you know he stops and says all right not everyone has this historical education let's uh let's take a moment and explain who these people are uh so i mean uh michael is there anything else about herod that you would want to highlight here i i thought his attitude toward herod was very interesting um in in almost precisely the way that the biblical account of herod is interesting he's not a wholly unsympathetic character and somehow in being not wholly unsympathetic he ends up being unsympathetic if that makes sense like he's he's so close to understanding the truth and and bead sees this and kind of scorns him or pities him for not being able to go all the way so he's this weak man who's in a position of strength and because of that is damned I like, I like that. I mean, there's there's something about him being um, more responsible because because of the degree to which he appreciates some really serious things that are true and ought to be guiding his decisions. Right. He, he has this kind of aesthetic appreciation of John that does not manage to save him. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, David, how recently have you read around in Josephus? Because it's been 20 years for me. Oh, gosh. It's been more recent than 20 years, but not more recent than 10. Okay, because <laughs> the, the question I have, and I mean, if, if you can't answer it, that's fine. Maybe one of our listeners can. 
Uh, but um, does Josephus, I mean, ever give any reason for, um, well, I, I mean, basically for uh, Herod's, there's no polite way to put this. Does he ever psychologize Herod and explain, you know, was this customary for people to take pleasure in their stepdaughter's dancing? Because that's something that the, the canon, canonical Gospels, they fly right by that. They don't comment at all on something that, I mean, yeah. appears to be just super creepy. Oh, yeah. Um... The passage... Um... The passage I'm looking at in Josephus, the Jewish War, doesn't even mention Salome. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it, it says it says it says that John condemned him for marrying his brother's wife in defiance of the law. "Quote: This attack infuriated Herod, who ordered the man to be flogged and kicked out. But he constantly waylaid the tetrarch and reiterated his accusations till Herod lost control altogether and ordered him to be killed." Constantly waylaid. <laughs> I love that. So the 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 role of Herodias and Salome in the story is uh, a contribution that's from the Gospels. Now there, there there is a reference. I'm sorry, I've never actually read Josephus, but I have his, I have the book here. There is a reference to her. Um, elsewhere in the book to Herodias to Salome it just says that um, he had two he had other daughters Roxanne and Salome the first by Phaedra the second by Elpis but that would make it sound like it wasn't his stepdaughter but his his flesh and blood daughter or, or it might be a different Herod I don't know maybe I should have read Josephus well, instead of just buying the book and leaving here. it on my shelf <laughs> And I, and I guess that's the other question that occurs to me is that, you know, uh, and I don't think even Josephus would have commented on this, but, you know, was John sort of a forerunner of Jesus's radicalism on divorce? Or was it simply because Herod did not present, uh, or Herod's brother, pardon me, didn't present her with a certificate of divorce? Was that what he was uh, was objecting to, you know? Uh, and again, you know, I mean, these are things that, uh, are occurring to me as we're recording. I should have thought of these and researched them before the episode too, but they are questions that are uh, interesting at the very least. Josephus says that everyone who who um, everyone who respected the law was disgusted by what Herod did, but that doesn't exactly answer your question, does it? Right, yeah. right. Well, it might not be the um, the divorce teaching of Jesus necessarily showing up here in in john it might it might be the your brother's wife angle um which is a different set of of levitical prescriptions ah yes true enough true enough that that that's probably closer to the target yeah Uh, so I, i i don't know what other shenanigans herod got up to um you know, but you know, taking taking your brother's wife as your wife um, is one that uh, I think even you know even even Romans even Gentiles would have would have been uh, looked at that a bit askance. I think. 
at least that seems to be the kind of the kind of language that Paul uses about the guy who's co- cohabiting with his uh, with his father's second wife. And I mean, there's still kind of a taboo on it, right? If you if you heard that a man dated a woman and her daughter, you'd be you'd be grossed out by it. I mean, it's not the same thing as siblings. You, I guess you do hear about guys who marry a woman and they get divorced and then he marries marries her sister. And for that matter, you hear about it with women marrying two brothers. There's a Gabriel Marcel play, actually, that, that that's the plot. So I don't know. It, it, it does seem mm-hmm. like it, 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 it lightly trips the incest taboo. So it, I mean, it also makes sense yeah. that the, the Herod Salome story trips the incest taboo in a more serious way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it, it feels as if this story is um, on the edges of those topics that would have been deeply offensive, especially to um, especially to Jewish readers, but is not necessarily going to call it out. But also in hereditary monarch monarchies, don't you get a lot of incest and inbreeding? Um, or is that just a stereotype? In, no, I mean in Egypt, marrying siblings was almost a rule. Uh, the, Tol- the Ptolemies adopted that one, actually. Um, when they uh, when they took rule in Egypt, they adopted the sibling marriage uh, thing. Right, and of course those weren't ethnic Egyptians; those were Greek pharaohs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're they're. N- Hellenized Macedonians now deciding to LARP as Egyptians. And the Sadducees seem... <laughs> they're, they're trying to catch Jesus with who is this woman going to be married to in the afterlife because one brother dies and she marries the next one, which is apparently part of the law. So it, it seems like maybe it's less the incest taboo and more the fact that he has stolen his brother's wife. Not, not that he died and she married him, but that Herod has seduced Herodias and and married her away from his brother. Mm, okay. Sort of the, uh, you took the sheep from the man who had one kind of situation. Right, although I'm sure Herod's brother had more than one, too. <laughs> you don't you don't see a lot of positive I, I references to Herod's. Well, yeah, I mean, I and 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 what Michael's pointing to there is that that is that the Herod brothers are acting like Roman emperors here. Uh huh. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I, I'm just uh, part part of me is is still kind of fascinated that Bede has access to Josephus. Um, I. I Oh sure, I mean he had quite a library. Did I, well, I'm, why am I telling you this, David? What kind of library did he <laughs> have, David? <laughs> a big, a big one, the probably the best stocked one in Western Europe at that point. Um, much of it imported straight from Rome and other Italian sites of lore and learning. Um, but real talk, David, did he have more books than I have? I mean, I know you don't yeah. know exactly how many books I have, but th- like his library, how does it compare to a like the library of a uh, a modern amateur like myself? He, 
Well, he he personally would not have owned any books, uh, but the the, mona oh. the monastic library that he would have had access to at um, uh, St. Paul's Monastery in Jero, um, and he probably had lending privileges at St. Peter's in Monkwearmouth as well. But even then, medieval libraries, early medieval libraries, um, were considered lavish if they counted their books in the scores or hundreds. Okay. Right. The idea of having thousands of volumes, um, you would you would probably need to go to a Rome or an Alexandria before it gets burnt down for that sort of thing. Um, Interesting. But, but having having hundreds of books would have been uh, unimaginable, uh, almost unimaginable wealth to most people in that time period. But I dare say he made more use of his books than I do of mine. I, he certainly quotes them <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, there, yeah, he, he has, you know, I, I, I love reading his sermons because he's... It, 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 just the the way that evidence of his reading keeps cropping up is part mm -hmm. of the, part of the fun for me, and I, I I don't know. We sometimes think of the period in which he lives as this you know this dark hole in which people didn't know a lot, but he's actually one of the people who kept um, kept interest in those topics, um, kept knowledge of those authors uh, alive and in circulation. So, I mean, it, it wasn't just that they owned the books, but they also had to have people who were trained in the languages who knew what to do with the books. Um, a, a pile of books that nobody knows how to read is not useful. Uh, but Bede, Bede was one of the guys who knew how to use the books, and, that, and those were the kinds of skills that he tried to pass down to his students. And that's what Alcuin brought to Charlotte. Sorry to lead us down the garden path there. Yeah, no worries. Um, I'm also fascinated because we've been we've been talking kind of at the edge of uh, some of his uses of some of his uses of scripture. Um, I'm fascinated uh, also by um, the ways that a Christian scholar like Bede thinks his way through scripture. I'm always interested in what that looks like in different eras of the church. Um, in the ways that it makes me nod, and in the ways that me that it makes me kind of go. Ooh. Um, so, what kind of interpretive, hermeneutical, exegetical moves do you see him making as he explores this text, Michael? Well, he he uses what I think of as is really the quintessentially medieval method, that fourfold allegory, but he he does so in a way that is not really strained in any way it feels very very organic and the the place i picked up most is the way he talks about um the, the way he talks about herod he says um that herod was completely mistaken in refusing to believe of in the god man and then he says why was this dearly beloved brothers was it not that we might clearly understand that the miracle of the resurrection was not unbelievable, but because their sinfulness stood in the way, the minds of the evil were kept back from the gift of belief. So you have this real life event. So you have that literal, literal level. And then you have 
God kind of behind the scenes manipulating the figures in order to make it into an allegory. And he does this over and over and over again in this in this sermon. And I assume it's something he does in his other sermons as well, none of which I've read. But the idea is, is, is that not only is the Bible these four levels of meaning, like all of human life is these four levels of meaning. And, and it just takes somebody with the hermeneutical skill and the, the kind of leading of the Holy Spirit in order to interpret it, it for us. But it all feels very natural. Um, when I when I read people talking about this, the fourfold method, it 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 feels um, it, it feels kind of chintzy to me. It, it, it feels like they're stretching it. Nothing in this sermon feels like stretching it to me. It's just him um, him reading the Bible and history in the way in which he's accustomed to doing so. It, it, like I said, it feels very natural and organic. Did it feel that way to you guys? Yeah, he, he's certainly a very skillful uh, rhetorician as well as, you know, uh, a biblical scholar and as well as a philosopher. So, I mean, you're right, Michael, that he, he does it so smoothly that, you know, you don't necessarily see, all right, now I've stopped being literal, I'm going to start being moral. Right. Um, I mean, another thing that he does that uh, is maybe a little bit more noticeable uh, is that as he is narrating uh, this biblical uh, episode, uh, he brings in maxims from other parts of the scriptures, from Revelation, from the Epistle of James, from Ben Sirah. Uh, and, you know, once again, uh, he doesn't, you know, announce it and he doesn't uh, choose passages that are by any means a stretch, but I mean, he, he makes it sound as if, uh, you know, St. John of Patmos uh, was writing about the, you know, the execution of John the Baptist when, he, you know, uh, when, when chapter 22 comes around and it says, let the wicked continue in their wickedness, let the righteous continue in their righteousness. Um, an, another one of those allegories that I found especially interesting, David, was uh, when he talked about the bodily position of Christ on the cross, uh, as if to stretch out and say, all of this that you see, uh, I am the ruler of these things. Hmm. Yeah. I, I love the, um, the, the way that you say it, Michael, the, the, the naturalness of it, that it doesn't feel like a reach. If you just say that baldly the way that you did, Nathan, I'm not saying that you say it baldly, but if you just said... Jesus' position on the cross is allegorically interpreted to mean that he is the ruler of, of what what he sees or what or like if you just said that you'd be like I mean it's a Roman crucifixion like like why do you, why do you why would you say that but then uh, he has uh, he has scriptural language that he uses. Uh, he uses that lifted up language that Jesus uses as if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Um, he, so he uses that lifted up language it, echoing Jesus. And then he has um, this quote from uh, what's the text Philippians um, that because of the death on the cross, he is exalted and given uh, the name above every name so that everyone would bow before him in heaven and earth and under the earth. So it's not that he just sort of sees someone lifted up above the earth and says, ah, that means positionally he has authority over the earth. But rather, 
he already knows this of Christ. And he uses that that language of position to see it in the prepositions of this other story, if that makes sense. Um, the aboveness of Jesus in Philippians bleeds over into the aboveness of Jesus as he is on the cross. Um, I, that feels very that feels very organic to me too, Michael. Um, it there there weren't that many moments in this text where I went, "Come on, that's a stretch." You know, it it all seems very um, sensible. And one other feature, David, that I found interesting is that there is. And I'm not sure if this is the the, the best phrase for it, uh, but there is a sort of secondary use of these biblical characters. So I mean, if if their primary use is to set a context in which the ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ are intelligible, uh, what this sermon does is recenters them uh, so that they can be positive and negative moral exemplars. Right. But the, the moral examination, what's interesting, is done in light of the narrative for which they were the context in their primary use. Yeah. I, I, what's, a, what's an example of that? I mean, I... I... Uh, I, I mean, you know, Herod himself. I mean, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, in the narrative of the beheading of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark, I'll just choose the one that I've taught most often, uh, you know, I mean, there is there is no slowing down to examine his epistemology, um, and certainly not to examine his epistemology in the light of his, you know, his, uh, what is the nominal form of reprobate? His, his, <laughs> his reprobation? Yeah, reprobation. Reprobation. There we go. Uh, certainly not to examine in li- in light of his repro- reprobation or salvation. Right? Those categories of reprobation and salvation only make sense theologically uh, in light of Easter, and yet this sermon circles back and examines him precisely in those categories. Mm-hmm. Bede treats all of history and especially salvation history as if it were a novel that God is writing with lots of. Uh, foreshadowing and callbacks. Oh yeah, that's a great way to say it, Michael. Um, I'm just kind of skimming through here, and I saw this sentence: Herod's sorrow was indeed similar to the repentance of Pharaoh and Judas. And then he goes to unpack the similarities, but he's he's taken these three different narratives, one from the Pentateuch, so so very very much you know before the Gospels. And then Herod, who's kind of earlier in the Gospels, certainly pre-Passion. And then Judas and his portrayal of Christ in the events of the Passion. But he's kind of seeing them all as um, as connected in connected in this way. And that's something that uh, not not just in their role as the one who oppresses the one who is speaking for God in their individual narratives, but also in the ways that they, that they sorrow, but not rightly. They repent, but not rightly. Um, working out that, repro- that reprobation that you talked about. Uh, I, I find that 
that seems like a good example of the foreshadowing that you're talking about, Michael. I'd like to poke for a second at something that I found odd, Nathan. So, Bede starts off by calling this a birthday sermon, in some sense. But then, not that far into the poem, he, he apparently condemns categorically celebrating birthdays. So, what yeah. gives? He's a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's honestly the direction that I was, I was half expecting him to go. Uh, to connect it to the birthday celebrations of the Roman emperors and therefore, uh, you know, distinguish between the two. But uh, he never does go there, and it makes some sense because, you know, here uh, in the 8th century, we're, we're pretty far removed from uh, Roman emperors being a, an everyday reality uh, in the life of, you know, uh, modern Europeans here in the 8th century. Uh, there will be a Holy Roman Emperor before too long, but we're still a little bit before that. Uh, so instead, uh, the image that he brings into this, and we, we touched on it earlier, is the idea that, that John's death is his birth. It is a second birth into suffering, uh, mirroring the, the birth of Christ into suffering. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the second birth here, uh, definitely a phrase from the Gospel of John, usually applied to uh, baptism in my own tradition, uh, but here it is martyrdom that is the second birth. Uh, and he says, you know, that we should not celebrate our own birth, but rather we should lament our own death before it happens. And this is one of those places where he brings in the maxim from Ben Sira to talk about it. Um, but yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, I expected it to go one direction, but it was largely uh, a meditation on uh, suffering and martyrdom uh, as a form of birth. Uh, and this is probably a translation thing, uh, but I still want to celebrate it because uh, he talks about Herod celebrating, quote, an inauspicious celebration of a birthday. And I just thought that was great. I really did. Inauspicious? Yes. Feels yes. euphemistic. <laughs> it does. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, you know, the, the categorical objection here uh, is not that it is a, an abomination in the way that, you know, imitating the cult of uh, the, you know, Canaanites or is an abomination. And it's not a betrayal of, you know, the reign of Christ in the way that acting like Caesar is a betrayal of reign of Christ. But it really is a meditation on suffering as a second birth. That's interesting. Uh, there is part of the sermon that connects. You, you said that in your tradition, when you talk about second birth, you connect it with baptism. And there is a move where he does that towards the end when he, uh, when Bede has this long sentence of parallel clauses uh, where he's sort of paralleling the events in, in, in John the Baptist's ministry with the events in his suffering at the end of his ministry. But he says, he to whom it was granted to baptize the world's redeemer, to hear the father's voice and see the grace of the Holy Spirit descend upon him, was baptized in his own blood. So he speaks of the martyrdom as a baptism. Hmm. Ah, yep, yep. So, um, I've, I've, I've seen that language before in descriptions of martyrs, um, but particularly those stories of martyrs that you sometimes read 
um, in something like Eusebius, where there will be Christian martyrs who go and suffer, and then there are those in the crowd who convert on the spot and join them, and so did not have the opportunity to um, take the usual route of catechesis for a year and then baptism at Easter. Um, but that, that martyrdom was uh, being referred to as a baptism in blood is, is something that I've, that I've, I've seen in, in sources like that. That's interesting. So we can't, can, can we still celebrate birthdays? Do, do I need, still need to feel good about that? You should be <laughs> celebrating your saints day instead. Okay. <sighs> All right. Just name your children after whatever the saints day is on their birthday, and then you don't have a problem. Hmm. Um, my name day is March 3rd, if I remember rightly. Saint David. I don't remember when St. David is. Do you eat leeks on that day? Isn't that his, isn't that his thing? Um, I mean, I think I have eaten a leek on March 3rd. I changed my Facebook portrait, uh, my Facebook, you know, kind of picture to a leek. Does that count? Sure. <laughs> so, Michael, Bede has an application for us in this sermon. That's one of the things that I love about this. As learned as he is, he is constantly making this move back to, and here's what we should learn from this. So what are the important lessons that we're supposed to bring out of this homily, this meditation on Herod and on John? The big one I get is a phrase that I think I may have stolen from you, Nathan. Uh, Divine judo, is that one of yours? I don't remember saying that, but I'll take credit. Okay. Well, it's divine judo in the sense that, as he says in the first in the first sentence, um, we must not only recall with pious devotion his steadfastness and suffering, but also turn into weapons of salvation the malice of those at whose hands he suffered. So there's this there's this notion that the things that uh, wicked men like Herod do and think are never really what they think they are because again God is the one writing this novel and God kind of determines the plot of it There's, it's a very providential uh, message to the sermon and so even even the things that look like they're bad for us actually end up being good for us and I, I suppose you, I, I, I don't think he makes this connection himself or at least explicitly you could also say that the things the Herods of the world think are good for them are actually bad for them. Um, and, and so there's this kind of chiasmus um, going on in the story of Herod and John the Baptist. Uh, and, and I think that's what he's wanting us to apply. What lessons do you see here, Nathan? Well, as I said before, I mean, I think that, you know, what's interesting about this, and I probably jumped the gun when I talked about it before, uh, is that, you know, um, what Bede seems to be doing here is uh, interpreting these characters in the light of theology that only arises after their story has passed in the conventional timeline. Uh, so, I mean, the, the application seems to be that, uh, you know, the, the theological categories of uh, sin, redemption, uh repentance so on and so forth uh, and of course I put those out of order as well as stalling out on the third one uh, but you know they are uh, 
omnipresent, you know, so that uh, they can apply temporally uh, in whatever direction. So, you know, the the a fortiori here, I talked about that structure earlier, uh, is that, you know, if we can examine uh, Herod in these terms, then a fortiori we can examine our own lives and the priest can examine your life and so on and so forth. You know, it is, it is a call to confession in a pretty pretty powerful sense. Yeah. I, I expected, well, and probably growing up and, you know, going to vacation Bible school led me to this, but especially stories from the Old Testament when you're a child, it tends to be David fought the giant with God's help, and you too can fight big can can win with God's help. Or eat your vegetables. Joshua being courageous. Eat your vegetables like Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Eat broccoli. Um like that 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 approach to it. And yet when we get to the end of this sermon, and I and I just I'm not gonna read the whole sentence because it's enormously long. But Bede essentially says, when we see someone like John the Baptist, what remains for us to do under these circumstances, dear brothers? And I'm expecting, but to follow their great example. And da, da, da. That's not what he says. What it remains for us to do under these circumstances, dearly beloved brothers, except to humble ourselves the more in the sight of our beloved maker and redeemer, the more clearly we become aware that we are unable to follow them, either by imitating their lives or or their deaths. But what Bede wants you to see when you look at John the Baptist is an example there, like, wow, I could never do that. And yet there is still some duty, there is still a duty for you to, like John, to humble yourself, to be tested, to suffer well, even as you look at his example and say, I can never do that. But the, but the saying you could never do that is part of the humility that actually allows you to do it, right? Yeah. Let us become humble with John and fast and make our entreaties unceasingly. Let us exult at decreasing in the sight of human beings. Let us be tested and for a short while let our spirit fail us. That is, our fleshly and proud spirit, which tends to be puffed up, so that by advancing in good deeds we may be capable of growing in his sight and of being exalted with him, who deigned to come from heaven to earth to raise us who are of earth to heaven, etc., etc., etc. So, like... That that's that divine judo again. Yeah. The, the idea is I'm going I'm going to allow myself to be injured, and in doing so, I'm actually going to be stronger than I ever would have been before. But you can't get there by saying I'm going to be just like John the Baptist. And and one of the amazing things about the examples of the saints is that they seem so impossible. And so part of the process of sanctification is looking at them, feeling that you could never do it, and repenting of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that, that, that judo part of the application. That's something that I feel is missed in. I, I very often, I, I remember the, the, uh, the application moves of my youth, which were, here's the, cool, here's the cool Bible guy. Go be like that, which is very kind of the, the fleshly, proud, puffed up, I'm going to be like Daniel. Or, it's Pelagian, right? Right. Or things that I heard later in life, which was the 
recognize that you're you know you've got your 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 fallen your weak flesh and your and so just sort of be dependent upon God in your sin and and any call to heroic virtue as being something that isn't of grace but Bede is somehow managing to do both of those things he's saying there is there is a way in which you can both imitate and be humble in your sin. That- David, he's I think I think he's just expressing the Orthodox Catholic position here, which is um, that we cooperate with grace for our for our justification and salvation. That you 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 don't do it on your own. That's Pelagian, but you do do it. Like like you're you're involved in this. There's there is something for you to do. Mm-hmm. I think B would probably not have access to the language, but would say, yeah, that's what I just said. <laughs> what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, I think that, I mean, what we're seeing here is is precisely what you guys are talking about. I mean, a, a, a narrative, and I'm, I always go there when I, I think about ethical questions uh in which uh to assume that you already have the resources and the capacity to be john the baptist uh is an error but it's also an error to assume that uh john the Baptist's resources are purely inherent that you know uh therefore they are by definition uh ruled out in the story that you're part of and that's where the grace comes in i mean you know uh as michael noted uh, this is not something that, that we reach, uh, by, and I'm, I'm not even sure what phrase to use here. I mean, you know, heroic striving, uh, but rather by faithful reception of gift and then faithful cultivation of that same gift. It's a kind of gracious virtue ethic in a certain kind of yes, way. Yes, it is. Um, that there is there is something that you do that inculcates some kind of change in you, but it is something more than the mere cultivation of habitus. You are meant to imitate John the Baptist as your exemplar, but the first thing you have to do is to say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Right. So it's 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 not that it's not that you can't be John the Baptist, so you have to be humble. It's that John the Baptist couldn't have been John the Baptist if he hadn't had that same process of humiliation. Maybe I do need to give up my birthday. Just makes me proud. <laughs> well, we have looked at this sermon through the lens of my interests, especially when I was making the question set. Uh, but what did you two pick up that we've neglected so far? There is a passage in this sermon that says that uh, John's martyrdom was, quote, accomplished in spiritual combat, end quote, and then goes on to talk about how uh, John's uh, transport to his own execution was parallel with Elijah's being uh, lifted up, uh, you know, from the earth when he was being pursued by enemies. And it, it's just fascinating to me uh, because my own tendency when I read that narrative in Mark, again, just to go to the gospel that I've taught most often, uh, is to read it as uh, a very cause and effect, uh, you know, efficient cause kind of narrative. 
Uh, but here, I mean, Bede is saying that, you know, this is being orchestrated the way that we've been talking about through this whole podcast. You know, he views all of history as being orchestrated by God and God's angels. So I, th- I thought that was a, a fascinating reading of, uh, I guess, the, the motive force making this narrative happen. Michael? I'm really interested in in Bede's glossing of King Herod's being sorry that he had to keep the promise to Salome. He says, The king's sorrow is not absolution from his wicked deed, but a confession of it. This is this indeed is characteristic of the justice of the judgment from on high. The damned often recognize and admit they've done wrong and manifest a certain regret for their wrongdoing, yet do not cease their wrongdoing. And man, that seems so modern to me. There, there's, a, there's a certain sort of confession that happens in our culture that's not really a confession it's it's saying all these vile things that you've done but not repenting of them or being sorry for them there's a kind of glorying in that uh, openness that is is almost worse than not being open at all and I, I, my, my frame of reference for this is a little bit dated, but I'm thinking of that HBO show Girls that was so uh, controversial a few years ago. That, that's really the, the modus operandi of that, um, of that show is, is showing the kind of depravity of this person without somehow recognizing that it's depraved. So it's very Herodian in that sense. And I, I think that's all over contemporary American culture. Cool. Maybe we just need to read more Bede. Well, dear listener, that is our episode of Bede on John the Baptist. What are we doing next week? Well, several years ago, we had a, uh, an episode on uh, critical theory and literary criticism. Uh, and uh, a listener, Matthew Limber, wrote in asking us to do a, uh, a sort of updated episode uh, on critical theory and its pervasiveness in internet culture, pop culture, so on and so forth. So several years ago, we did Critical Theory's Excellent Adventure. Uh, so next week, we're going to do Critical Theory's Bogus Journey. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Does that mean that like 20 years from now, we're going to have to come back and do a third one? Your daughter. Well, there, there was a, uh, an, an immediate cause behind my uh, goofy title. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm just go. surprised you're not making us do an episode on the new Bill and Ted yet (laughs) (laughs) well dear listener you have that to look forward to as as do i if you have any feedback on this episode any comments about Bede or john the baptist or you know happy juxtapositions of the twain uh you can send us feedback at the christian humanist at gmail.com you can post comments on our blog christianhumanist.org we are on Facebook. You can comment there, send us messages, and we're on Twitter, uh, CH Radio Network. At CH Radio Network is the uh, the Christian Humanist Radio Network Twitter. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.